Nathanger Abbey by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 6. Previously on Northanger Abbey, in Volume 2, we start out with a dinner with the Tilneys where we get some red flags about the general, possibly, and we get the letter from James talking about the money issues of his marriage to Isabella, and it's clear that Isabella and her mother are not happy with the financial arrangements that are being displayed. And then that is all overshadowed because Catherine gets an invitation to go stay with the Tilneys at their country home, Northanger Abbey. Yay, lots of excitement. Then we get some problems showing up in the happy lives of Isabella and James. Because Isabella is flirting with Captain Tilney, Catherine's flirt's older brother. There's continued concern about this whole Captain Tilney-Isabella situation. It's making it is making Catherine very uncomfortable. But Henry tells her basically to kind of not worry about it. It's not that big a deal. His brother will be leaving Bath soon, too. It's not, you know, nothing will come from it. They'll all just laugh when it's over. And that her brother would not thank her to think that Isabella only loves him if, when he doesn't have any competition. And so she should just kind of ignore it and hope for the best. Then they all leave Bath. Well... Catherine and Mr. Henry Tilney, Eleanor Tilney, and their father, General Tilney, all leave Bath together on their way to Northanger Abbey. We get a little bit more insight into the general and his the way he treats servants, which is not good, which is not a plus in his column. And then she spends some time with Henry in the curricle, and he tells her some scary stories about, you know, kind of teasing her about being so excited to see an old abbey building where she's hoping to see all this gothic stuff, like, from the novels. And instead, she's sort of disappointed because it all looks pretty normal and modern inside when she finally gets there. The other news we find out, which I guess we kind of, well, no, we didn't really know before, is that Henry has his own house in Woodston, and that is where he probably ha is assuming is his parsonage house. So that's where he is a clergyman, though he is apparently not there very often since he seems to live a lot of the time at the Abbey. And since he just, you know, has spent, I don't know how long, but maybe a month in Bath. So he obviously has somebody else doing the day-to-day -day work there as the clergyman, but he is at least in title in charge of being the clergy at Woodston which is where his house is, and it's, I think he said, about 20 miles away from the abbey. But it is controlled by the by his father. He was given that job and that home by his father. And that is where we've left off at the end of Chapter 5, and we are going into Chapter 6 for more time at the abbey. A moment's glance was enough to satisfy Catherine that her apartment was very unlike the one which Henry had endeavoured to alarm her by the description of. It was by no means unreasonably large, and contained neither tapestry nor velvet. The walls were papered, the floor was carpeted, the windows were neither less perfect nor more dim than those of the drawing-room below, the furniture, though not of the latest fashion, was handsome and comfortable, and the air of the room altogether far from uncheerful. 
Her heart instantaneously at ease on this point, she resolved to lose no time in particular examination of anything, as she greatly dreaded disobliging the general by any delay. Her habit, therefore, was thrown off with all possible haste, and she was preparing to unpin the linen package, which the chaise seat had conveyed for her immediate accommodation, when her eye suddenly fell on a large, high chest, standing back in a deep recess on one side of the fireplace. The sight of it made her start, and, forgetting everything else, she stood gazing on it in motionless wonder, while these thoughts crossed her. "'This is strange indeed. I did not expect such a sight as this. An immense, heavy chest. What can it hold? Why should it be placed here, pushed back too, as if meant to be out of sight? I will look into it. Cost me what it may, I will look into it, and directly, too, by daylight. If I stay till evening, my candle may go out. She advanced and examined it closely. It was of cedar, curiously inlaid with some darker wood, and raised about a foot from the ground on a carved stand of the same. The lock was silver, though tarnished from age. At each end were the imperfect remains of handles, also silver, broken perhaps prematurely by some strange violence, and on the center of the lid was a mysterious cipher in the same metal. Catherine bent over it intently, but without being able to distinguish anything with certainty. She could not, in whatever direction she took it, believe the last letter to be a T, and yet that it should be anything else in that home was a circumstance to raise no common degree of astonishment. If not originally theirs, by what strange events could it have fallen into the Tilney family? Her fearful curiosity was every moment growing greater, and seizing with trembling hands the hasp of the lock, she resolved at all hazards to satisfy herself at least as to its contents. With difficulty, for something seemed to resist her efforts, she raised the lid a few inches, but at that moment a sudden knocking at the door of the room made her, starting, quit her hold, and the lid closed with alarming violence. This ill-timed intruder was Miss Tilney's maid, sent by her mistress to be of use to Miss Moreland, and though Catherine immediately dismissed her, it recalled her to the sense of what she ought to be doing, and forced her, in spite of her anxious desire to penetrate this mystery, to proceed in her dressing without further delay. Her progress was not quick, for her thoughts and her eyes were still bent on the object so well calculated to interest and alarm, and though she dared not waste a moment upon a second attempt, she could not remain many paces from the chest. At length, however, having slipped one arm into her gown, her toilette seemed so nearly finished that the impatience of her curiosity might safely be indulged. One moment surely might be spared, and so desperate should be the exertion of her strength that, unless secured by supernatural means, the lid in one moment should be thrown back. With this spirit she sprang forward, and her confidence did not deceive her. Her resolute effort threw back the lid and gave to her astonished eyes the view of a white cotton countervane, properly folded, reposing at one end of the chest in undisputed possession. She was gazing on it with the first blush of surprise when Miss Tilney, anxious for her friends being ready, entered the room, and to the rising shame of having harbored for some minutes an absurd expectation was then added the shame of being caught in so idle a search. That is a curious old chest, is it not? said Miss Tilney as Catherine hastily closed it and turned away to the glass. It is impossible to say how many generations it has been here. How it came to be first put in this room I know not, but I have not had it moved, because I thought it might sometimes be of use in holding hats and bonnets. The worst of it is that its weight makes it difficult to open. 
In that corner, however, it is at least out of the way. Catherine had no leisure for speech, being at once blushing, tying her gown, and forming wise resolutions with the most violent dispatch. Miss Tilney gently hinted her fear of being late, and in half a minute they ran downstairs together, in an alarm not wholly unfounded, for General Tilney was pacing the drawing-room, his watch in his hand, and having, on the very instant of their entering, pulled the bell with violence, ordered, "'Dinner to be on the table directly!' Catherine trembled at the emphasis with which she spoke, and sat pale and breathless in a most humble mood, concerned for his children and detesting old chests. And the general, recovering his politeness as he looked at her, spent the rest of his time in scolding his daughter for so foolishly hurrying her fair friend, who was absolutely out of breath from haste, when there was not the least occasion for hurry in the world. But Catherine could not at all get over the double distress of having involved her friend in a lecture and been a great simpleton herself till they were happily seated at the dinner-table, where the general's complacent smiles and a good appetite of her own restored her to peace. The dining-parlour was a noble room, suitable in its dimensions to a much larger drawing-room than the one in common use, and fitted up in a style of luxury and expense which was almost lost on the unpractised eye of Catherine, who saw little more than its spaciousness in the number of their attendants. Of the former she spoke aloud her admiration, and the general, with a very gracious countenance, acknowledged that it was by no means an ill-sized room, and further confessed that, though as careless on such subjects as most people, he did look upon a tolerably large eating-room as one of the necessities of life. He supposed, however, that she must have been used to much better-sized apartments at Mr. Allen's. No, indeed, was Catherine's honest assurance. Mr. Allen's dining-parlour was not more than half as large, and she had never seen so large a room as this in her life. The general's good humour increased. Why, as he had such rooms, he thought it would be simple not to make use of them, but upon his honour he believed there might be more comfort in rooms of only half their size. Mr. Allen's house, he was sure, must be exactly of the true size for rational happiness. The evening passed without any further disturbance, and, in the occasional absence of General Tilney, with much positive cheerfulness. It was only in his presence that Catherine felt the smallest fatigue from her journey, and even then, even in moments of languor and restraint, a sense of general happiness preponderated and she could think of her friends in Bath without one wish of being with them. So, Chapter 6 finds Catherine in her bedchamber, here at Northanger Abbey, getting ready for dinner, and she's in a big hurry to get ready because, as we have become aware, the general is very strict about being on time. She goes up to her room... It's, again, pretty modern. It's not all tapestry and velvet. There's carpet. The, the walls are papered. The windows are normal new glass. It's all very handsome and comfortable. The air of the room is altogether far from uncheerful. So, again, the Abbey just seems to be a normal house. I mean, a nice one, but not old and decrepit and creepy the way she had been expecting and hoping for. But, in any case, she comes in and she's at ease, instantly at ease in the room and lost no time, you know, looking around at everything in general and is just going to get ready. She quickly throws off her habit and is going through her kind of day bag for her evening dress to put on for dinner when she notices a chest, very large and old, off in the corner. She thinks it's weird that it's kind of placed far away, 
and she is hopeful for something weird and spooky and creepy and this chest is her first attempt at it so she goes over to the chest tries to look at it she notices that it doesn't seem to be a tilney chest it doesn't seem to have a t on it and she thinks that's very strange how could the family have gotten it i think it's pretty likely that it came in with you know one of the wives down the ages who came with a different um, maiden name that's on the chest probably be my guess i don't know or just from somebody else who's not part of the family a cousin or somebody somehow the chest ended up there in any case it's old she's looking at it she's really excited about it and she is has fearful curiosity and so she has to try to look inside and something I noticed throughout this whole first section of the chapter, they keep, she, Jane Austen uses the word violent or violence all the time. She's using it multiple times throughout here. And one of them, one of them is that she opens the chest and then gets startled and the chest, the top of it falls down with alarming violence. And... The one she was startled by was just Miss Tilney's maid coming to help her get ready. And Catherine says that she's fine. She doesn't need any help. But that pulls her back. Okay, stop looking at the chest. I need to get dressed. And so she starts putting herself together again. But she's going very slowly because she keeps staring at the chest. Because that's what she wants to be doing. She's not really paying attention to getting dressed. And so she eventually decides when she's not quite done getting ready with only one of her arms in her gown to go over and look at the chest again and she opens it up in great excitement to see what's inside and it's just a white counterpane so that is the like top cover that goes on the bed i think when it's not in use to like protect the comforter and the sheets and the, everything from getting all dusty and gross so i'm kind of thinking those white sheets that you'd see in the movies when they're like closing up a house to keep to protect the furniture underneath. I think that's what this is. This is something that would be used on the bed because this is a guest bed, a guest bedroom. It would be often probably empty. And so this is the counterpane that you put on to protect the pillows and the mattress and the comforter of the, of the bed while the room is not in use. And because it is in use now and it's been made up for Catherine to stay in, that has been taken off and folded and put away in this chest. And it's really just not a creepy contents that Catherine was hoping for it's something very common it's something that she knows what it is and she knows why it's there and it makes sense for it to be in a room like this and so she just is disappointed and also embarrassed that she got her hopes up and was so excited over trying to find something weird and creepy and it was just a counterpane But she doesn't have much time to think about that because Miss Tilney comes in right afterwards to try and hurry her along because they are running late for dinner and the general will not be happy about that. And she notices that Catherine is looking at the chest and just says that she doesn't know how old it is or how long it's been there, but you know, she didn't bother getting rid of it because it seems like it might be useful sometimes and there was plenty of room for it and you know, back in the corner it's not in the way or anything, so you know, whatever. It's impossible to say how long it's been there, how many generations it's been there. 
and it's difficult to open, so it's not that useful, but you know. And that's her, that's kind of just her excuse that there's no real reason to get rid of it, I suppose. And Catherine had no leisure for speech, being at once blushing, tying her gown, and forming wise resolutions with the most violent dispatch. Again, the word violent. As I said, the word violent is used quite a bit here. It, it seems to me like it must be on purpose that we are getting that word violent. Because then, after they're done, Miss Tony's done getting Catherine together. She's all dressed. They run down to get to the t to get to dinner. General Tilney was pacing the drawing room, his watch in his hand, and having, on the very instant of their entering, pulled the bell with violence. Again, violence, this time specifically directed at with the general, which I think is interesting and important to notice. And Catherine is kind of scared of him, and breathless, and humble because of what her, she just was doing in her room and concern for his children and detesting old chests. <laughs> so she's concerned, especially because he starts scolding Eleanor right away about having hurry, foolishly hurried her fair friend who was absolutely out of breath when there was no need. And then Catherine is doubly upset because A, she's up, the general's mad because she's late. And now he's yelling at Eleanor because she hurried her. So it's just nothing she's done has been correct. And she just feels like a great simpleton herself, it says. Once they finally get in and get seated at the table, though, she kind of restores her equilibrium because the general seems in a better mood now that they're eating and she has a good appetite as well. And then we get a section where the general is just bragging about his home and his rooms talking about how big the dining room is and Catherine saying that she's never seen a room so big and Mr. Allen's dining parlor is only half as large. Um, and that made the general very cheerful. And all in all, she could think of her friends in Bath without one wish of being with them. So she got scared of kind of the trunk thing. She's not particularly loving the general. We've gotten that word violent and violence used quite a bit as kind of a part of her being scared and unsettled in this house. But at the end of it, she's very happy there and she doesn't wish to be back in Bath. So things are all good for our little Catherine. The night was stormy. The wind had been rising at intervals the whole afternoon, and by the time the party broke up, it blew and rained violently. Catherine, as she crossed the hall, listened to the tempest with sensations of awe, and when she heard it rage round a corner of the ancient building and close with sudden fury a distant door, felt for the first time that she was really in an abbey. Yes, these were characteristic sounds. They brought to her recollection a countless variety of dreadful situations and horrid scenes which such buildings had witnessed, and such storms ushered in. And most heartily did she rejoice in the happier circumstances attending her entrance within walls so solemn she had nothing to dread from midnight assassins or drunken gallants, 
Uh, Henry had certainly been only in jest in what he had told her that morning, and how so furnished and so guarded she could have nothing to explore or to suffer, and might go to her bedroom as securely as if it had been her own chamber at Fullerton. Thus wisely fortifying her mind as she proceeded upstairs, she was enabled, especially on perceiving that Miss Tilney slept only two doors from her, to enter her room with a tolerably stout heart, and her spirits were immediately assisted by the cheerful blaze of a wood fire. "'How much better is this?' said she as she walked into the fender. "'How much better to find a fire ready lit than to have to wait shivering in the cold till all the family are in bed, as so many poor girls have been obliged to do, and then to have a faithful old servant frightening one by coming in with a faggot? How glad I am that Northanger is what it is! If it had been like some other places, I do not know that, in such a night as this, I could have answered for my courage. But now, to be sure, there is nothing to alarm one.' She looked round the room. The window-curtain seemed in motion. It could be nothing but the violence of the wind penetrating through the divisions of the shutters, and she stepped boldly forward, carelessly humming a tune, to assure herself of its being so, peeped courageously behind each curtain, saw nothing on either low window-seat to scare her, and on placing a hand against the shutter felt the strongest conviction of the wind's force. A glance at the old chest as she turned away from the examination was not without its use. She scorned the causeless fears of an idle fancy, and began with the most happy indifference to prepare herself for bed. She should take her time. She should not hurry herself. She didn't care if she were the last person up in the house, but she would not make up her fire. That would seem cowardly, as if she wished for the protection of light after she were in bed. The fire therefore died away, and Catherine, having spent the best part of an hour in her arrangements, was beginning to think of stepping into bed, when— on giving a parting glance round the room, she was struck by the appearance of a high, old-fashioned black cabinet, which, though in a situation conspicuous enough, had never caught her notice before. Henry's words, his description of the ebony cabinet, which was to escape her observation at first, immediately rushed across her, and though there could be nothing really in it, there was something whimsical. It was certainly a very remarkable coincidence. She took her candle and looked closely at the cabinet. It was not absolutely ebony and gold, but it was Japan, black and yellow Japan of the handsomest kind, and as she held her candle the yellow had very much the effect of gold. The key was in the door, and she had a strange fancy to look into it, not, however, with the smallest expectation of finding anything, but it was so very odd, after what Henry had said. In short, she could not sleep till she had examined it. So, placing the candle with great caution on a chair, she seized the key with a very tremulous hand and tried to turn it, but it resisted her utmost strength. Alarmed, but not discouraged, she tried it another way. A bolt flew, and she believed herself successful. But how strangely mysterious! The door was still immovable. She paused a moment in breathless wonder. The wind roared down the chimney, the rain beat in torrents against the windows, and everything seemed to speak the awfulness of her situation. To retire to bed, however, unsatisfied on such a point, would be in vain, since sleep must be impossible with the consciousness of a cabinet so mysteriously closed in the immediate vicinity. Again, therefore, she applied herself to the key. The very curtains of her bed seemed at one moment in motion, and at another the lock of her door was agitated, as if by the attempt of somebody to enter. Hollow murmurs seemed to creep along the gallery, and more than once her blood was chilled by the sound of distant moans. 
Hour after hour passed away, and the wearied Catherine had heard three proclaimed by all the clocks in the house before the tempest subsided, or she unknowingly fell fast asleep. And after moving it in every possible way for some instants, with the determined celerity of Hope's last effort, the door suddenly yielded to her hand. Her heart leapt with exultation at such a victory, and having thrown open each folding door, the second being secured only by bolts of less wonderful construction than the lock, though in that her eye could not discern anything unusual, a double range of small drawers appeared in view, with some larger drawers above and below them, and in the center a small door, closed also with a lock and key, secured in all probability a cavity of importance. Catherine's heart beat quick, but her courage did not fail her. With a cheek flushed by hope and an eye straining with curiosity, her fingers grasped the handle of the drawer and drew it forth. It was entirely empty. With less alarm and greater eagerness, she seized a second, a third, a fourth. Each was equally empty. Not one was left unsearched, and in not one was anything found. Well read in the art of concealing a treasure, the possibility of false linings to the drawers did not escape her, and she felt round each line each with anxious acuteness in vain. The place in the middle alone remained now unexplored, and though she had never from the first had the smallest idea of finding anything in any part of the cabinet, and one is not in the least disappointed at her ill success so far, it would be foolish not to examine it thoroughly while she was about it. It was some time, however, before she could unfasten the door, the same difficulty occurring in the management of this inner lock as of the outer, but at length it did open, as not in vain as hitherto, was her search. Her quick eyes directly fell on a roll of paper pushed back into the farthest part of the cavity, apparently for concealment, and her feelings at that moment were indescribable. Her heart fluttered, her knees trembled, and her cheeks grew pale. She seized with an unsteady hand the precious manuscript. For half a glance sufficed to ascertain written characters, and while she acknowledged with awful sensations the striking exemplification of what Henry had foretold, resolved instantly to peruse every line before she attempted to rest. The dimness of the light her candle emitted made her turn to it with alarm, but there was no danger of its sudden extinction, it had yet some hours to burn, and that she might not have any great difficulty in distinguishing the writing than what its ancient date might occasion, she hastily snuffed it. Alas, it was snuffed and extinguished at once. The lamp could not have expired with more awful effect. Catherine, for a few moments, was motionless with horror. It was done completely. Not a remnant of light in the wick could give hope to the rekindling breath. Darkness, impenetrable and immovable, filled the room. A violent gust of wind, rising with sudden fury, added fresh horror to the moment. Catherine trembled from head to foot. In the pause which succeeded, a sound like receding footsteps and the closing of a distant door struck on her affrighted ear. Human nature could support no more. A cold sweat stood on her forehead, the manuscript fell from her hand, and groping her way to the bed, she jumped hastily in and sought some suspension of agony by creeping far underneath the clothes. To close her eyes and sleep that night, she felt, must be entirely out of the question. With a curiosity so justly awakened and feelings in every way so agitated, Repose must be absolutely impossible. The storm, too, abroad, so dreadful. She had not been used to feel alarm from wind, but now every blast seemed fraught with awful intelligence, the manuscript so wonderfully found, so wonderfully accomplishing the morning's prediction. How was it to be accounted for? What could it contain? To whom could it relate? 
By what means could it have been so long concealed? And how singularly strange that it should fall to her lot to discover it! Till she had made herself mistress of its contents, however, she could have neither repose nor comfort, and with the sun's first rays she was determined to peruse it. But many were the tedious hours which must yet intervene. She shuddered, tossed about her in her bed, and envied every quiet sleeper. The storm still raged, and various were the noises, more terrific even than the wind which struck at intervals on her startled ear. So in the second part of the chapter, we get to learn that the storm is coming in, and Catherine is going back up to her room, and it's dark now, it's after dinner, and now is the first time she's feeling that she might actually be in an abbey, because she's hearing the sounds of the storm sweeping through, and she's calling these, yes, these are characteristic sounds, and are making the making it much creepier than it was the first time, and that's that makes her happy. She says, and most heartily did she rejoice in the happier circumstances attending her entrance within walls so solemn. So the storm is raging, and that makes it much creepier than it had been earlier when the sun was out and it was light and bright everywhere. Now it's after dark, and there's a storm brewing, and so everything just seems creepier, and Catherine is enjoying the ambiance. But she just tells herself that she has nothing to worry about, you know. Henry had been jesting earlier with his scary stories about the house. She's not going to be worried about it. She's just as safe as she, if she had been at home in Fullerton. And she's also comforted by the fact that Miss Tilney, her room was only two doors down. So that's something that came up in Henry's scary stories, that she would be off by herself in a section of the house with nobody else near. And that's not what's happened. She's staying in you know, two doors down from Miss Tilney, so she's in the family wing, very close to everybody, shouldn't be a concern. And she's very happy that the fire's already lit, and so she doesn't have to worry about that. And in this section, we're having, we're getting a lot of the words of courage and scare and fears and those sorts of words. So she's, I've got stout heart, frightening, courage, scare, fears. Those are the, those words are popping up over and over through this. Things are either making her braver or scaring her and kind of going back and forth. Because we've got stout heart and then frightening and then courage and then scare and then fears and then courageously. So she's got, she's scared about something and then she's kind of getting herself working, pep talking herself back up and then she's scared by something. But she decides she's going to take her time getting ready for bed. She's not going to worry about it. And she's not going to bother building up the fire because that would seem cowardly. But as she's getting ready for bed, she notices a cabinet that she hadn't seen before. And she thinks this matches up perfectly with the story Henry was telling earlier, where she would see a black and gold cabinet she hadn't noticed previously. And inside was going to be a manuscript. And that's kind of where his story ended, right? That that story with the manuscript that was going to be like this horrible story of Matilda and so Catherine is very excited to see this cabinet and so she goes over to look into it and she can't get it open at first and she has to play with the lock a bunch finally she gets it open all the drawers she checks them all they're all empty but eventually she finds in the middle compartment another compartment with a key 
and inside of there she finds some papers. But then she checks on her candle and she ends up accidentally kind of blowing out her candle. Well, it says she snuffed it and she snuffed and extinguished it once. So when I think of snuffing a candle, I'm thinking of the little like bell looking thing that you put over the candle to um, snuff it, to, to extinguish it. I'm thinking of snuff and extinguish to be the same thing. So that sentence is kind of confusing to me. So I had to look this up and apparently at the time frame, snuffing it does not mean to put it out, which is what I would define snuff to mean of like snuffing a candle would be putting it out. Um, but according to what I was able to find, it seems like snuffing a candle means to cut off part of the wick that is already burned and like turned to charcoal. And then the candle will shine more brightly when it only has the um, unburned like white part of the string still there to burn. But Catherine, in her haste, cut too low and just cut off too much of that, of the wick. And that's what's... So snuffing is cutting off a piece of the wick so that, so that some of that charcoal is gone and so that it burns brighter, which I was not aware that that was something you could do. But I am not a candle aficionado. So there you go. So when she says that she snuffs and extinguishes at the same time, that's what's happening here, is that she cut too much of the wick off and that extinguished the candle, which puts her into darkness right away. And now she's scared and she drops the papers and she runs back to her bed and gets un under the covers and she's got a cold sweat on her forehead and she thinks that she's not gonna be able to sleep at all and she's up late listening to the storm and just being scared and kind of seeming to have a bit of a panic attack, um, thinking about what the letters could be She's not sure. The storm is raging. She keeps thinking that she's hearing sounds throughout the house. You know, an old house settling. She thinks she's hear somebody walking down the corridor and going into a room nearby. Which, you know, seeing as that she was only a couple doors down from Miss Tilney's room, she seems to be in the family wing. It's very likely that, you know, I think it could be likely enough that other, you know, the other members of the household live nearby or their rooms are nearby or just a servant even going to Miss Tilney's room or whatever. I, I don't think it's that crazy to think that in a big old house like that, somebody walking by, I don't think is that crazy or like scary or uncommon. I think it's pretty likely somebody could have walked by, but she keeps thinking that she's hearing moans and other just sounds in the house. You know when you're in a new house you've never been to before, sometimes there are sounds that are just part of the house that you're not used to. And so she's just noticing every single one and working herself up into a fervor. And finally, after 3 a.m., she falls asleep. And that is the end of chapter 6 of just Catherine working herself up over... Some papers she found. She doesn't even know what they say yet. But I'm sure we will find out. So this chapter is one that I will admit when I first read this novel seemed kind of silly and pointless to me. 
reading it now, trying to like dig in for deeper meaning, I still am struggling to find the purpose of this chapter. But what I'm coming up with is noticing that in the first half of the chapter, we have that word violent all the time. In the second part of the chapter, we have the words scared, bravery, frightening, um, trembling, those sorts of words put into Catherine's experience here at Northanger Abbey. So this is really kind of our first chapter where we're being introduced to the Abbey. Because last chapter was all about the travel to the Abbey, but we didn't really spend any time in it. Chapter 6 is our first introduction to what the Abbey is. And so that's where I'm taking it, the meaning of this from, kind of, is that this is our introduction to what the Abbey is. And we're being introduced to a room that at during the day, when Catherine first is there, um, and seeing her bedroom, it's very far from uncheerful, it's light and modern and normal, and the only thing she notices a little out of place is that one chest, but that, and so she, first we get some of this kind of gothic language about the chest and the violence and things. I think this is really a chapter where Jane Austen is leaning in to making fun of gothic novels because this chapter fits in almost, except for the fact that we find out right away that there's nothing in the chest. The rest of it really fits into like this model of what a gothic novel would be. We've got way more descriptive language than Jane Austen usually gives us especially about furniture. We usually don't get much of anything about furniture. And here we've got some, yeah, some big details about this chest. We really get into what this chest looks like, where it is in the room, how hard it is to open in a way that Jane Austen almost never gives us. So that's an interesting piece. Like, why is this chest so important? And I would submit that I don't really think it is important per se. It's just that this is a very different style of writing because this chapter could fit in as being a chapter from a gothic novel, if that's what we wanted it to be. That's easily what it could be. Um, and so there's all this stuff about Catherine being scared and being brave for going to look into it, and then everything is just a letdown, like, oh, no. This is the real world, not a gothic novel, so there's not some scary thing inside the chest. And then we get a little bit of a break. She goes down to dinner. We get some more red flags with the general acting weird and making her uncomfortable. Especially the stuff about his children and how they have the best time when the general isn't there. I think that's very telling. That they're having a great time as, long as, as soon as the general leaves the room. Everything's great. Um... So she's having a good time, especially when the general's not there. And then she goes back up to her room and we get this next section again, where this time it's all about stout heart, frightening courage, courageously, scare, fears, cowardly. Um, it's all about her looking behind the curtains and hearing the noise, the wind whistling through the windows and finding this old cabinet. And it goes again into this into some very descriptive language about this cabinet and how she's opening up all the drawers and the lock in the middle and all this stuff in a way that Jane Austen usually doesn't give us this kind of detail 
Um, and in fact, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the kind of detail she sort of make fun, she's made fun of in some of her letters sometimes as not being necessary. So I think that this chapter feels out of place to me because it's very much not written in Jane Austen's style. Jane Austen doesn't usually write like this. Um, and so this is her kind of stealing a different type of writing style where she's going into all these descriptions about furniture in a way that she normally would not do. Um, she also uses the word cavity a lot in this one. That word seems to come up a lot. The lock, the key, going through all the different drawers. I just really feel like this chapter, to me, both the section about the chest at the beginning and the cabinet at the end, feel like they were written by somebody else. Like, they don't feel like they fit in a Jane Austen novel. And I think that the reason that she put them in there and she's doing this is because she is trying to do a different style of writing. It's She's trying to write kind of a gothic novel scene here. This scene is supposed to fit into something like the Mysteries of Udolpho where the heroine is searching through an old room and finding something spooky. But in the case of the chest, we quickly find out that no, there's nothing spooky about it. It's just a chest and it's old. Like, what are you thinking? And so she's quickly embarrassed by that. And then she goes down to dinner and things are fine. Then she comes back up again, but she can't help herself. Again, we get into this another scene with Catherine where she's turning her life into a gothic novel. And I think that's what we're taking out of this, is that Catherine is viewing things that we are seeing through the clearer lens, especially during the daylight hours, that this is just a normal room. There's nothing creepy about it. There's nothing strange or like horror story kind of tropes going on here. She's not going to find a skeleton in the cabinet or anything. But she has come with this kind of preconceived notion about what an abbey has to be, which is based on what she's read in gothic novels. And so horror stories. She's expecting a horror story, and that's what she's looking for. And so I kind of feel like maybe Jane Austen is making fun of her a bit with that in her looking for a horror story where there isn't one. And then she finds the papers in the cabinet and we don't find out what those papers are yet because she is so, you know, kind of scared about what she's doing that she ends up messing up her own candle. And so she then just huddles in bed and like spends most of the night awake, huddling in the bed, scared of everything and scared of every noise she heard, scared of every noise she hears. And yeah. I'll be honest, not my favorite chapter. I don't know that I feel like it means all that much or that it's providing that much to us in this moment. It's just kind of there. And I'm not, still not 100% sure why. I mean, I'm explaining to you why I think it is. I think that this is just a way for us to see Catherine twice now kind of skew herself into thinking she's in a horror novel when she is not. And I suppose she's kind of been doing that. It's there. But it just feels kind of out of place and doesn't feel like Jane Austen's writing to me. And so this chapter is just, it ends up feeling a little off in my opinion. In any case, we'll come back next time with chapter seven and I will see you there.
feel free to join the conversation. My email and Twitter are in the description. Please get in touch. Let me know what you think about the podcast or Northanger Abbey or Jane Austen in general. Love to hear your comments and I will see you next time. Thank you.